Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Woodburn Baptist Church. My name is Tim Harris, pastor here. Uh, it, it's really good to have you. Welcome to you. Perry, Oklahoma, uh, Pastor Brian Ahern. We love you, Church on the Square. God bless you guys, all of you in the overflow. Thank you for being a part of worship today. Open your Bibles, everybody. Everybody open your Bibles to Psalm 130. If you don't have a Bible, there's a Bible in the pew right in front of you. You can take that and use it. You can take it home with you if you wish. We'd love to put that Bible in your hand if you don't have a copy of the Word of God. Psalm 130, it's, it's, it's a beautiful psalm. I, I ache to, to preach this well today, but I'm already uh, concerned. There's a verse in this psalm that is, I guess everything in the Bible is beyond my depth, but, but verse 4 is, is just beyond my depth. And I, uh, I, I, I just beg God to, to show us all some insight today as we get to Psalm 130. This is good scripture and a good word for all of us. God... God wants to do something in your life. Do you know that? Do you understand that? God wants to do something for you and through you and, and in you, but he cannot do it. He cannot do it without your participation, without your permission. And, and I just beg God today that he'll break all of our hearts and we will long uh, to give him full, full sway in our lives. Psalm 130 is where we'll be. This is good stuff. From the depths of despair, O Lord, I call for your help. Hear my cry, O Lord. Pay attention to my prayer. Lord, if you kept a record of our sins, who, O Lord, could ever stand? Here's the verse. But you offer forgiveness that we might learn to, say the word, fear you. Now that's, that's the verse that's, that's bothering me. You offer forgiveness that we might learn to fear you. I'm counting on the Lord. Yes, I'm counting on him. I have put my hope in his word. I long for the Lord more than morning watchers long for the dawn. Yes, more than morning watchers long for the dawn. Oh, Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is unfailing love. His redemption overflows he himself will redeem Israel from every kind of sin. Eight verses, that's the song. There's so much there. Uh, let's, let's jump right in. You ever heard of a do-it-yourself project? How many of you enjoy do-it-yourself projects? Yeah. You know, though, of course, there are some things you should not try to do yourself. Uh, let, let me give you an, an example. This comes from a church in, in, in Borja, Spain. Uh, let, let me start here with, the, with this picture. The church in Borja, Spain had some lovely uh, master artwork on the walls by a, a very uh, fine painter by the name of, of Elias Garcia Martinez. He painted in the 1800s. He wasn't uh, world famous. He wasn't all that, but he was a master painter, and he was commissioned back in the 1800s to paint the walls of this church. Now, it's not just painting on the walls. These are frescoes, which means he took paint and painted right in the wet plaster while the walls were still drying. So these paintings are literally part of the wall. They're in the wall, okay? One of the most beloved frescoes or paintings in the church was this picture right here. This is the face of Jesus by Elias Garcia Martinez, painted in 1894 at the Church of... Uh, mercy, the, the Church of C Compassion in Borja, Spain. That's the way this particular image appeared when Elias Garcia Martinez painted it back in the 1800s. It, it was beautiful. Now, 
understand, 100 years goes by, over 100 years goes by. It's a small church in a small village in Spain. They had moisture problems. They had all kinds of problems inside the little church. And so the, the paintings, the frescoes began to deteriorate, and especially this picture. So this is what it became recently. It started looking like this. This is the same painting, the same fresco by the same artist, Alaska Garcia Martinez, 1894. But by the time we got to this year, 2012, the painting was very deteriorated, very deteriorated. The moisture had made the pastor, the, the pastor, the plaster, the pastor flaked off, man. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I swear it happens. Yeah. The, the plaster began to flake, and the paint began to flake off. So the face of Jesus was very badly damaged. Now, now understand, this is not a museum. This is a church. Not a museum, a church. And the people who go to this church, the Church of Compassion in Borja, Spain, they love their church. And they love these images. And there was a number of people who grew up in the church, loved the church. And it literally broke their heart, just broke their heart to see the face of Jesus look like this. Broke their heart. So that's where a little lady, an 80-something-year-old lady named Cecilia comes in. Now, now Cecilia, her heart was just broken over the way the face of Jesus had started to look there, uh, the way it was flaking off. And she just felt like, doesn't anybody care about this? Somebody ought to do something about that. You ever been in church when they say somebody ought to do something about that? So, so Miss Cecilia took it on herself to do something about it. All right, understand? Now, uh, Elias Garcia Martinez, he was a master painter, but Miss Cecilia was not. So she went down, if there's a Hobby Lobby in Borja, Spain, she went to Hobby Lobby in Borja, Spain, and got herself some paints and some brushes, and she came in one day when nobody else was around because she wanted to surprise them, understand? <laughs> she, she came in, and she restored, she restored the painting of the face of Christ, and this is what we got. Yeah, did I mention she's not a master painter? Yeah, poor Miss Cecilia, she just, she's not a painter. She's not a painter. But she gave it her best shot. She painted over the master painter, the master painting, and this is what they got. Now, when the church people arrived on the following Sunday, no kidding, they thought they'd been vandalized. They thought they'd been vandalized. They were calling the police. They were saying, who would do this to our church? Who would deface the face of Jesus? I mean, people now, this has become famous around the world. It's on the internet. People are calling this potato Jesus. They're calling it potato Jesus because people say his face looks like a potato now. It's awful. It's just awful. And people in the church were saying, who would do this? Who, do th who did this? And finally, Miss Cecilia stepped forward and said, I did it. I did it. I thought it needed restoration. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It probably needed restoration. And there are people who do that. There are professional, professional painters who will restore a master painting like that. Miss Cecilia was not a master painter. You understand? There are some things you just simply shouldn't try to do yourself. Understand the lesson. Some things you just shouldn't try. Now, the professionals tell us that whenever you're about to attempt a do-it-yourself project, you should ask yourself three questions. You ready? Write this down for your husbands. Before you try to do it yourself, ask yourself three questions. Number one, do I know what I'm doing? Do I know what I'm doing? Number two, number two, could I hurt myself? 
And number three, could I make it worse? Someone said that life is a do-it-yourself project. You agree with that? Life is a do-it-yourself project. Do you agree with that? If your life deteriorates, if your life begins to, to, to fall apart, to flake, to, to crumble, if your life begins to go down the drain, can you fix that? Understand, this is critical. The answer is no. We are all amateurs. We are not the master. You cannot fix yourself. You cannot restore yourself. You need the master's hand. Life is not a do-it-yourself project. Your life is not something that you can do yourself. You need the master's hand. He wants to restore you. So how does that happen? Come back to the psalm with me, Psalm 130. This is a psalm about redemption, a psalm about restoration. And whether you understand it or not, whether you realize it or not, this is what you need more than anything else you could possibly imagine or want or name. This is what you need. You need your life restored by the master's hand. You, you need that. But, but how does it happen? Verse 1 in Psalm 130, from the depths Oh, Lord, I call for your help. Hear my cry. Oh, Lord, pay attention to my prayer. It starts very simply. you got to want it. You have to want it. You all have heard me say this over and over and over because it's the most basic thing I know how to tell you. you got to want God. You have to want God in your life. You have to want the master to take control. And let's be real honest. A lot of us simply don't want God. You may want church on Sunday morning, and even the way some of you complain, that's debatable. Whether you even want church, you understand. But you got to want God. It's not even about church. It's about God. You have to want God in your life. You have to want Christ. And notice where this psalm begins. It's going to end with restoration, but it begins with the psalmist. It begins with the individual calling out to God. God, I need you. I want your help. God, listen to my prayer. At some point in your life, if it's ever going to turn around, if the master's ever going to take your life and do something beautiful with it, you understand? It's going to begin with the turning point. And that turning point is that moment in your existence when you stop everything else and you realize that you want God. More than you want your old friends, more than you want your addictions, more than you want to gossip, and more than you want money, you have to want God. It starts there. You have to want him. Honestly, the world is full of people who seem to have zero, no desire for God. And the saddest part is there are churches that are rather dominated by people who really don't seem to want God. They don't seem to call out to him. They don't want his help. We just want to do it ourselves. You've got to want God. It starts there. From the depths, oh Lord, from the depths. Okay, let's stop right there. If the psalmist is a believer, if, if the psalmist is a child of God, what's he doing in the depths? Why does the psalm have to start in the depths? 
How did he get in the depths? Well, I don't know. I don't know how or why he's in the depths. It could be that being in the depths is just a natural occurrence. It could be that if you live life long enough, you're going to spend some time in the pit. I'm not saying a physical pit. You could. I don't know. But at least a psychological or emotional pit, the emotional depths, sometimes life is just like that. It can be a natural occurrence that you can suddenly find yourself in the depths. You can find yourself low. You can find your life going down the drain. That's what the psalmist says. From the bottom of the drain, I call out to you. My life is going down. It's a natural occurrence for some of us. For all of us, if you live, you're just going to end up there. But maybe in this particular instance, maybe God's put him there. Maybe God could put us in the depths. Do you believe that? Is that possible? Would God do that? Of course he would. Of of course he would. God will allow me to suffer in this life. God will put me in the depths so that I can begin to understand how high he is. Do you get that? God will allow me to suffer in this life so that I can enjoy the the pleasures of, of his holiness for all eternity. In this life, God may put me in the depths. He won't leave me there. But he may take me through those depths so that I can learn to long for something higher. Do you understand? God can put you there. And when he does, he's going to do that to bless you. He's going to work out for your good. So maybe God put him there. I don't know. Maybe he put himself there. We don't even need God's help a lot of times. We don't even need life naturally to put us in the depths. Some of us just wake up in the morning and that's where we go. We head for the depths. We have this tendency to put ourselves there. You've heard the old saying, when, you're, when, when you find yourself in a deep hole, stop digging. But some of us just continue to dig. We put ourselves there every single day by our stupidity, by our sin, by our own tendency toward depression. We will put ourselves in the depths every day of our lives. No help needed. But understand one thing. From God's perspective, we are all always in the depths. Do you understand? From his highness, from the heights of his glory and holiness, we are always, always somewhere in the depths. It's the only place from which we can cry out to God, from the depths. And it's because of our sin. It's because you and I are sinners. It's because we are fundamentally and tragically broken, broken on the the inside, and we cannot fix ourselves. If you could improve your life, if you could change your ways, if you could be a different kind of man, if you could be a new mama, understand you would have already done that. If you could change, save, restore, forgive yourself, you would have already done that. You can't do this yourself. You are in the depths of sin just like me. Sin is our problem, and only God can restore us. Only God can help me be the man that I long to be, the man he created me to be, the husband that Casey deserves, the pastor that this church requires. Only God can do that in me. And only God can do that in you. Life is not a do-it-yourself project. You need the Lord. You need the Lord. And you're never going to do this on your own. You can't. You won't. If you could, you already would have. So so before we 
Move one step further. Just ask yourself about the depths as you know them. What is it in your life right now that's deteriorating? Where do you experience, where do you feel that, that brokenness, that, that deterioration of circumstances and relationships in your life? Is it your marriage? Is it with, with, with friendships at school? Is, is it with the girls? Is it with your children? Is it on the job? Is it in the, way, in the way you struggle with your own habits every single day? Is it in your own thought life the way you just simply cannot turn off the, the filth station that continues to play in your mind? Because of sin, we all experience this deterioration, this, this brokenness. And so the only place that we can ever cry out to God is from the depths. Now here's the thing, I don't know how you got there, I don't know when you got there, I don't know why you're in the depths, but I know one thing, only God can restore you. From the depths, only God, only God can restore us. But it always comes back to my sin, it always comes back to sin. Now we're getting to restoration, but we can't go any other way but through verse 3 and 4. This is amazing, Lord if you kept a record of my sins, who, O oh Lord, could ever survive, could ever stand? Lord, if you kept a record of our sins, who could stand? Can you let that sink in? Can you let that sink in? Have you ever thought about your old friends, like your high, think about your best friend in high school or maybe your old buddies or the girls you used to run with. You, you ever stop to think, you know what, if they ever decided to tell all those stories on me, they could ruin me. Have you ever thought about that? You ever thought about, oh my goodness, if my ex-wife ever showed up on the Oprah show and she just started talking, if, I, I mean, if my old drinking buddies, if they all get drunk and they start talking about everything they know about me, man, man they could ruin me. There are people in the world, and you think, my goodness, if they wanted to tell what they know, they could destroy me. You ever thought about that? Because here's the thing. This is what the psalmist is thinking, but he's not concerned about people. Because honestly, nobody in the world knows you like God knows you. And honestly, when it comes to sin, it's not the people that we sin against. I mean, you may have sinned against your ex-husband, your ex-wife, but honestly, your ex-husband, your ex-wife was not the lawgiver, not the holy one. They were victims of your sin, but they were truly not the ones you sinned against. It is always only God against whom we sin. Do you see that? God is the lawmaker, and you and I are the lawbreakers. So the psalmist says, God, if, if you kept a record of our sins, who could stand? It's a very short verse, but, but, but understand, there's this particular kind of imagery that he's using. And again, the psalmist spoke Hebrew. He wrote in Hebrew. And the language he uses here is actually military. It's, it's military language. It's very short, but it's a military picture that he's using here. It's the picture of someone who is defeated in battle. Someone who is defeated in battle. And the idea is that once you surrender in battle, 
you lay on the ground. You, you, you fall on your face before the victorious warrior. You, you fall on your face, you lay on the ground, and in doing so, you expose the back of your neck. So what happens next? You expose the back of your neck so that the victorious warrior can put his boot on the back of your neck and crush your spine. That's the picture. That that's, that's the picture here. God, if, if you kept a record of our sins, who could stand? We would all be flat on our faces before him with the back of our necks exposed so that God, the holy and just judge, could put his boot on the back of our neck and crush our sorry souls. Do you understand? He is just and right in doing so. He is the holy lawmaker. We are the sinners. We've sinned against him. We have no position. We have no right to stand before him. We have offended him with our sin. You say, well, Brother Tim, I'm not that bad. You may be that bad. I'd like to interview your high school friends after what you just said, but, but, but you need to know I'm not that bad. You don't understand. We're not comparing you to me. We're not comparing you to other people. We're not dragging the worst sinner we can find somewhere out from under a car and stand them up next to you and compare you to them. We're comparing ourselves to a holy God. And you need to understand that before him, we are less than nothing. He could crush us like bugs and would be just in doing so. We're nothing before him. We have no worth apart from him. He is the holy lawmaker. We are the sinners. If he kept a record of our sins, I mean, if he got up this morning and simply decided to give us what we deserve, none of us could stand. On our faces, the back of our neck exposed, the warrior's boot would crush our spine. That's the picture here. That's what we deserve. So verse 4, I don't understand it. But you offer forgiveness. You offer forgiveness. Can you imagine being that defeated warrior on the battlefield, on your face, the back of your neck exposed? You're waiting for the boot to fall. You're waiting for your death. You're waiting for your execution, but it never comes. What comes instead? Forgiveness. Forgiveness. He forgives me. Why does he do that? I don't understand it. He forgives me. It has nothing to do with me. I don't deserve this. He is so great. He is so holy, so mighty. My goodness, why would he not just finish me off? He forgives me. You offer forgiveness that we might learn to fear you. That's not what I expected to read in that verse. It's, it's that word fear. How does forgiveness teach fear? I, I, don't, I don't understand the mystery of, of that. There's something so beautifully true about it. But I can't explain it. Forgiveness teaches us to fear him. I would think that God's justice, 
God's justice and wrath would teach us to fear him. When we're kneeling there with our neck exposed and the warrior's boot raised to deliver the fatal blow. I mean, that's fear. When we get what we deserve, that would be fearsome. That's what makes me afraid when I think about if God were to begin to, to rehearse the record of my sins. Oh my goodness, I couldn't stand. That's what scares me, but that's not what the Bible says. He offers us forgiveness that we might learn to fear him. I don't know. I don't know. Unless fear can be that, that overwhelming, overwhelming sense of God's love. I mean, can love be so great? Can love itself be so powerful? Can love itself be so overwhelming as to inspire a kind of grateful fear? I mean, can love itself be so beautiful that God's beauty in itself can be blinding and fearsome in its appearance? I mean, can God be just so good? Can, can God's grace be absolutely so riveting and shatteringly powerful that even though his grace is poured out, it still leaves us doing nothing but trembling in gratitude? I don't understand it, but I love it so much. I just love it so much that he just forgives and that that forgiveness is what inspires a kind of reverent fear in me. Now, what I need you to understand is this is where worship begins. This is where your spiritual life begins. This is what happens when you become a Christian. You understand? You, you are redeemed. In other words, there is a change in ownership. You no longer belong to your past. You're no longer owned by your addictions. You're no longer dominated by your habits. You understand? There's a change in ownership, and now you belong to him. You belong to the mighty, gracious, and good God who stands before you with trembling power and offers you forgiveness that would make you fear him. That's where worship starts. That's where worship begins. An understanding of who God is and what he's done for you. What you deserve and what you get instead. It's amazing. It's frightening. It's over. Oh Lord, if you kept a record of our sins, who could ever stand? But you offer forgiveness that we might learn to fear you. I'm counting on the Lord. Yes, I'm counting on him. I have put my hope in his, say the word, word. I've put my hope in his word. I long for the Lord more than sentries, more than morning watchers is the word there. More than morning watchers long for the dawn. Yes, more than morning watchers long for the dawn. We're talking about longing and we're talking about desire. More than morning watchers long for the dawn. That Hebrew word, morning watchers, it literally means those who work third shift. Kind of. How many of you ever worked the night shift, worked third shift? Yeah. Last night, and again, if you're watching this on, on, on Vimeo or listening to audio podcast, today is the day that we just rolled our clocks back. And most all of us love that. That meant for me and for most of you, we got an extra hour of sleep. That was wonderful. But what about the folks last night who worked third shift? What did they get? Yeah, an extra 
hour of work. Have you ever worked third shift? What do you long for all night long? Sleep <laughs> and morning. Oh my goodness, just to get to the end of that shift. When Casey and I first got married, Casey worked third shift. Oh my goodness, that was so tough. I know it was tougher on her, but it was tough on me too. Because Casey hated third shift. My wife loves to sleep. She loves to sleep. I mean, wake her up right now if you would. I mean, she loves, <laughs> she loves, loves to sleep. So when she had to work at, at the hospital on the, on, the, on the night shift, she would leave the house every night about 1030. But I had to stay up. As in, I had, to, I had to keep my shoes on. I had to look like I was staying up all night with her. Because if I slipped off and put my pajamas on before she left home, she would turn into, in, into a ferocious beast. I'm not kidding. Am I kidding? I mean, she was mean. She was mean. I had to sit up in a chair with all my clothes on, my shoes on, and look like I might just be up all night. Because if I looked like I was going to bed, she would get mad. I, I mean, really mad. And it wasn't just me. Casey will tell you, she would drive through Bowling Green on the way to the hospital, going to where she was a nurse, night shift nurse. And as she would drive through Bowling Green, when she saw lights go out, she hated those people. <laughs> just for turn, she knew they were going to bed, and it just made her hate them. Am I telling the truth, honey? It's the truth. Yeah, it's just the truth. Those were the longest nights for her ever. And this is the picture that the psalmist gives us. I, I, I wait for you, God. I, I wait for you. The way a morning watcher longs for the dawn. It's an interesting way to talk about waiting. Because understand, if you're waiting for morning to come, there's not a thing you can do to speed that up. You can turn your clocks forward, backwards, whatever, but you will not make the morning come any quicker. It comes when it comes. And you just wait. You wait. And this is the position that we are in but before the Lord God. We cannot do for ourselves what we need to have done. We cannot do it for ourselves. We know that we hope in the Lord and we know that our hope is in his word. All we can do is wait. We can't do this on our own. It's not in our power. We can't do this. We just wait for it. We wait for it to come. We wait for him to come and restore us the way morning watchers would wait for the dawn and long for the dawn. We just wait for him. We wait for him. But you need to understand something. He always comes. In the same way the morning always follows the night. In the same way that no matter how long and how deep the darkness, morning always comes. When you wait for the Lord the way a morning watcher longs for the dawn, you need to understand he always comes on time with light. And he comes and he restores us. He always restores us. Notice how the psalm ends, and then I want to get really practical. Oh, Israel, hope in the Lord. Notice verse 7, the whole psalm takes a turn. This has been very personal, very, very painfully personal. From the depths of despair, oh, Lord, I call for your help. Pay attention to my prayer. But once the psalmist experiences what God does in his life, he immediately turns in verse 7, and now who's he talking to? The whole world. All of Israel, oh Israel, you hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is unfailing love, love that never lets you down. Understand, unfailing love. His redemption overflows. He himself will redeem all of us, all Israel, from every kind of sin. 
there is this incredible desire. Once you experience what God does in your life, there is this incredible desire to see that shared. You want to see other people experience what God has done for you. That's why the gospel is good news. It's good news because you want to share that. How can you say that you've experienced this incredible forgiveness and grace of God, but then not be willing to share that news with other sinners? How could you not want other people lost and desperate and alone, in need of restoration, life going down the drain? How could you go on knowing what you know of the Lord? How can you not be eager to share that? What Psalm 130 describes, this experience of restoration in the Lord, what what I've been trying to preach here, understand, this is just the everyday, ordinary Christian life. In other words, this isn't just something for certain people or, or very, very devout people or people who just love to go to church more than you do. No, we're talking about what God is offering every single one of us. This isn't something for high-achieving Christians. This is just what the spiritual life looks like. Can we agree to that? Can, Can you understand that? This is just what God does for everyone. So how does it happen, and how will it happen for you? Well, to be real, real practical, as we said from the start, you've got to want God. You have to want him. You have to understand that from his perspective, you are in the depths of sin. You are in the depths, and you need his help. You will never, ever change your life on your own. You're not going to turn over a new leaf. You're not going to fix this thing. You need him, and you've got to want him. Starts there. If you don't want God, then you will not experience his salvation. You've got to want him. From there, you have to get very serious about the sin in your life. The sin in your life. Of course, it is so much more delicious to think about the sins in other people's lives. There's something just wonderful about sitting in church and looking around and trying to pick out the hypocrites and figure out who looks worse than you do today. You understand? There's something very delicious and wicked about that. Because what you're doing is focusing on others and never managing to get to the place where you see your own sin. You start there and you repent. You repent. There is a change of heart. There is a change of life. And only God can bring that. But it will not happen apart from your repentance. Understand? God is not going to grab you by the skin on the back of your neck and jerk you into place. No, you have to call out to him. You have to want him. You have to repent. Come to him. He forgives. He forgives so that you will fear him. So from there, there is a whole different kind of life. That means everything about yourself changes. In other words, your habits have to change. The way you live your life, I'm not talking about your church life, I'm talking about your life life, your life life, that changes. You're going to have to get serious about your habits. And that is why here at church, periodically, I'll remind you of what we call the triple two challenge. I'm not moving now to a commercial break. This is the way you need to apply the scripture. You've got to get serious about your habits. Now, if God forgives us so that we may learn to fear him, to worship him, then worship needs to be bedrock in your life. 
truly, our entire life is a life of worship, a life of gratitude and adoring him. Truly it is. But in the New Testament, all those who belong to Christ, we also belong to one another. We're his body. And so there's something very important about coming together. Whether we come together at church or in somebody's home, the important thing is that we gather as the body of Christ so that we can encourage one another, so that we can share our gifts with one another. This is what worship is in the New Testament. So bottom line, you need to find a way to make worship very, very central in your life. I would recommend, and as a church, we commit ourselves to the triple two challenge. It's three sets of two. And the first one of those twos is two hours every week that you'll commit to spend in worship. Now, this is not magic. It's not like you just put in time at church and things start to happen. No, we're talking about coming to church with an attitude, coming to church with a posture, coming to church with a desire to worship God. Two hours a week. Two hours a week. We offer three hours a week. So, hey, pick two out of three. Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. Find a way to worship two hours out of every week. You watch a lot more TV than that. So we're not talking about doing something extraordinary. This is a place to start. Two hours. Find a way to commit to two hours of worship a week. Okay? The psalmist also says that, that he's learned to put his hope in God's word. You need to make God's word the center of everything in your life, the center of all of your hope, where you look to for good things, God's word. So what we ask you to do at Woodburn Baptist Church is to commit yourself to two hours of Bible study every week. Triple two, you got it? Two hours worship, two hours Bible study. We want you in your Bible two hours a week. Now, we all offer, we all have the opportunity to attend a small group Bible study at 10 o'clock after this worship service. So there's one opportunity to spend an hour in your Bible with other believers, with a teacher. That's all good. But that's not going to cut it. You've got to find another hour. You've got to find a way to spend another hour. Do you understand that if you read your Bible 10 minutes a day, 10 minutes a day, and even if you skip a day, you'll still manage to get that hour in. The psalmist says, my hope is in your word, Lord God. You understand? You have to find a way to make God's word central in your life. If you can't make a minimal commitment like this, then you really have to ask yourself how serious you are. Do you really want God or not? I hope in his word. Two hours a week. That's not too much. The last thing. Two hours in service. Two hours in service. In other words, follow the way the psalmist works in Psalm 130. After he experiences everything God does for him, his next desire, his next impulse is to do something for others, to share that good news with others. You've got to find a way as a follower of Christ to serve others. Now in church, there are lots and lots of opportunities to serve. And if you spend an hour in the nursery or teaching preschool or teaching adults, whatever, th that counts, that's an hour. But please listen to me. Do not, do not spend all of your time serving inside the walls of this church. Do not think that you do all of your serving the Lord in here. Why don't you just maybe, if you're going to do two hours, spend one hour serving at church, but you save that other hour to get off your couch and go meet your neighbors. Go get to know your neighbors. Go meet their needs. Minister to them. Tell them about Jesus. Come on. You've got to learn how to take the gospel to the world that needs it. 
So serving isn't just about your, your church life. It's your life life. And we need to take what God does in our hearts in here and share that with the world out there. It's the most practical message I know how to preach. We're talking about the real kinds of changes that you and I need to make in our lives. Until our habits change, until our routine changes, until our life changes, then I'm not sure we can truly say with confidence that we've met the life-changing, powerful God. You don't meet God and not end up restored, redeemed, transformed. If there's no change in your life, then I would wonder if there's any conversion, any salvation, any real experience of Christ in your life. We're not establishing rules. Nobody's going to police you. Nobody's keeping records. This is your relationship with God. But the expectation is that your relationship with God matters more. Matters more than Anything, everything else. You really think that, that, that life is a do-it-yourself project? Do you really think that your changing, your restoration is something you're going to do outside of his power? You don't understand. The only one, the only hand that can restore your life is the master's hand. I'm asking you to put your whole life in the master's hand. Pray with me. From the depths, O oh Lord, we cry out to you. Pay attention to our prayers. Have mercy on us. If you, oh God, were to keep a record of our sins, none of us could stand. But instead, you have shown us forgiveness that we might fear you. We thank you, oh God, we thank you, O oh God, for such fearsome and ferocious grace. We thank you for beauty and holiness that slays our souls that we might be risen to walk with you. God, I pray that truly in this house we would reverently fear you and lovingly and gratefully fear you. Lord, I pray that truly we would want you more than anything else, that you alone would be our soul's desire. Lord, I pray that what we experience and what we talk about would not be something that we only think about in church. Lord, I pray that, that you would take a place in our hearts, Lord, take a grip on our hearts so that so that our entire lives begin to change, Lord, our habits change, our hearts change. Lord, I pray that truly in our church, individuals would become more committed to a personal life of worshiping you and a personal hope in your word. And Lord, a personal dedication to serving you and serving others. Oh God, this is not a game. This is not 
a show. This is not a Sunday morning routine. This is the restoration of our souls. And only you can do that for us, Lord. And apart from you, none of us will survive. So Lord, today, help us to place ourselves in your hands. And Master, do with us whatever you see fit. We are yours. We pray in your precious, holy, fearsome name. Amen.